you have a Bible or device, we are going to be in Revelation chapter 11. This is a chapter that is universally known to scholars and academics as one of the most difficult to interpret interpret chapters in Revelation, but I think we can put some handles on it and grab on to what it's telling us. The book of Revelation, we've been in for about 14, 15 weeks now. Revelation literally just means the unveiling of God's plans. Revelation literally means unveiling. That which was hidden is now being made accessible for us. Last week, we started talking about the seven trumpet blasts that come from God into an evil and broken world. There was hail and fire and blood. There's a great mountain falling into a sea, a star falling from heaven. One third of the sun, moon, and stars are dimmed. And then there's another star that falls, but this one isn't just an inanimate object. It is Satan himself falling from heaven. He releases demonic forces upon the earth. And then that sixth trumpet brings four demonic general type creatures. And if you're just here for the first time, you're like, what am I doing? You're jumping right into the middle of Revelation. And uh, I recommend if you, if you want to, you can go back and listen to the sermons before they're online. Uh, but we're going to kind of jump right into this because we left off at the sixth trumpet and 200 million mounted troops that wipe out a third of the remaining of mankind. And then at the very end of that chapter, John eats a scroll. This voice says, hey, eat that scroll. He's like, sounds weird, but okay. Eats a scroll and, and it's sweet to the taste, but it makes his stomach sour and bitter. And we talked about that this is the gospel. If you understand the gospel, if you have a, a full heart understanding of the gospel, it is the sweetness of God. But if you fully understand that, you also know that it is a bitter pill to swallow because it means there are people who are lost and people who do not know Jesus. And so he talks about that. And then as we jump into this next chapter, we're going to get to the seventh trumpet blast. But before we get to that, there are two important sections that come before the seventh trumpet blast that we need to talk about. And the first of these two uh, sections are just the two first verses, and they talk about the temple of God. And so if you have your Bible or device, read Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 and 2 with me. Then I was given a measuring rod, like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the core outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Kind of an odd thing, but John is given a measuring stick. It's probably literally a reed. And he, he said, measure the temple. And so he, he does this. And measuring something is kind of a sign of ownership or preservation or protection, right? If you get a new house, one of the first things you're going to do is you're going to go in and you're going to measure your bedroom and be like, where does my bed go? Where does my dresser go? You're going to figure out what does it mean to dwell in this place. And this is what God is telling John, go and measure the temple because I am going to dwell in that place. It will be my temple. But there's a problem with this. Because John is writing this book of Revelation in approximately the year 90 to 95 AD. And the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, 20 to 25 years before this takes place. 
Now, the original temple, if you go all the way back, was built 1,000 B.C. by Solomon. If you remember that story from the Old Testament, David wants to build a temple, but God says, there's too much blood on your hands. So then Solomon, David's son, builds the temple, and it's this big, beautiful temple, but it is destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. The Jews are spread out, but eventually they come back from exile in about 515 B.C., and they begin to reconstruct a second temple. But this temple pales in comparison to the first, to the point where many of the Jewish men that were able to see both weep because it is nothing compared to the glory of the first temple. But over time, it gets built up a little bit more. Eventually, uh, King Herod makes the temple mount larger. He overhauls the temple, and it becomes this big, beautiful temple. And the temple is so important to them in the Jewish faith because it is where the presence of God dwells. And so God is saying, this is my dwelling place. But Titus, Roman general, comes in in the year 70 AD because of a Jewish rebellion against Rome, and he completely lays waste to the second temple, to where there's literally not one stone left upon another. And so when John is writing this book of Revelation, there is no temple in Jerusalem. Israel is again dispersed because Titus destroys the temple and kills a million Jewish people. And the diaspora of the Jewish people go throughout the world, and they don't come back as a nation until 1948. Israel doesn't have a nation until within some of our lifetimes, which is just crazy to think about. For 2,000 years, they did not have a home. They do not have a temple. But according to prophecy, as we're reading here in Revelation, and if you read in Daniel, specifically Daniel 9, 10, 11, 12, if you really want to dive into this stuff, there will be another temple. A third temple will be built to God in Jerusalem during the tribulation times. And the Bible tells us, interestingly, that that temple, in many ways, is going to be built by the Antichrist. There will be a political leader that will rise up, and the world will think that he is a man of peace, that he is somebody that is a friend to the Jewish people, and somehow he's going to gather everyone around the the table of peace together, and he will build this temple. But even then, there's a problem if you look at the current world, because right now, if you go to Israel, sitting on the Temple Mount, there is a building called the Dome of the Rock, and it is a, a mosque for the Muslim faith. It is the third most holy building or place in their entire system of faith. And so, If somebody came in right now and said, we're going to tear that down and we're going to build a temple to Yahweh, absolute warfare would break out immediately. Complete and total warfare. So as we sit now, it's kind of like, well, how is this going to happen? How is there going to be another temple? And there's some interesting thoughts. I'm not going to get into all. One of the very interesting thoughts is that there are some Jewish scholars that are now saying the original Temple Mount from 3,000 years ago actually isn't where the Dome of the Rock is sitting, but it's 100 feet north of that. And so there's this idea, and this is all conjecture, there's this idea that if this Antichrist, this political figure, rises up and says, hey, we can have peace with everybody. If we rebuild this third temple 100 feet north of the Dome of the Rock, and then there can be peace amongst Palestine and Israel, and you can both have your holy buildings, and everything is going to be great. And doesn't that sound like exactly what a politician would do? We can fix everything, guys. 
as if they're going to fix 2,000 years of bitter, bloody conflict by saying, let's move the building a little bit. But this is exactly what Revelation says. Something like that is going to happen. Later in Revelation, we will see that later after that, that Antichrist will enter into the, the temple. He will put a stop to the sacrifices that the Jewish people are making. And he will demand to be worshipped as God in the temple. And this is what Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 24. And he refers to it as the abomination of desolation. Abomination meaning something that makes everyone hate-filled. He will enter into the temple of God and demand that he, a politician, a human leader, will be worshipped. And this will bring everything to a crumble. That's a lot. We're going to get more into that in Revelation, so don't think that I'm just passing over it, but it's coming back. Okay. Back to the scripture we're handling today. Revelation. The first part is connected to the second part. So let's now read Revelation chapter 11, verses 3 through 14, and we're going to talk about the two witnesses of Revelation. Verse 3, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut up the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will re rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. They stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Okay. A lot to unpack here as well. These two witnesses have been interpreted in many ways. And this is where we get into the difficulty of interpretation here. Some people will read this chunk of Scripture and they will say, well, these two witnesses are literal people. People that will come and they will be witnesses. They will stand in Jerusalem and they will prophesy and they will give the message. Other people look at it and they say, this isn't two literal people, this is two groups of people, like the church and the Jewish people, and that those two groups of people will witness to Christ and, and to the glory of God and, and show the world who God is. Still other groups might look at it and say, well, it's not people at all, it's a concept. It's the Old Testament and the New Testament that together witness to the glory of God. 
This is another thing that I'm not going to get super dogmatic about. I'm not going to say this is how it is, and if you don't believe this, you're wrong. People get into that. That is not the point of what we do. We are here to study the Word of God and to dive into it. I will tell you, I lean towards this being literal people, witnesses that will rise up and will bring the prophecy and the message of God. Now, interesting about that, if it is two literal people, then scholars have tried to identify who they might be for as long as the scriptures have been around. And one of the more interesting ones to me is that scholars have thought that maybe this is Moses and Elijah. Because if you look at that list of the things that these men can do, the fire from their breath, the turning water into blood, all those things, these are all things that Moses and Elijah did during their time. Consuming enemies with fire, shutting up the sky from rain, turning water into blood, bringing plagues, all of these things. And then if you remember the story of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, when he is seen as glorified by his three disciples, who's there with him? Moses and Elijah. So the idea, maybe those are the witnesses that come during this time, but we honestly don't know. What we do know is that the scripture tells us that these witnesses, whether it's two people or groups of people or concepts, it says they will prophesy for three and a half years. You read this in multiple different ways. The Bible says 1,260 days, 42 months, three and a half years. Those are all the same amount of time. It means half of the tribulation's time, seven years. It says they will prophesy and they will bring destruction on an evil world and nobody will be able to stop them because they are called to do so. But then when they finish, notice that when it says they finish their testimony, so only when God says you're done does something else happen. As soon as as God gives them a call, they are unstoppable for three and a half years. And the world hates them. Everybody hates them because in the world's eyes, they are the ones that are bringing this destruction. And so everybody hates them. And yet... When their three and a half years are done, it says that the beast, and this is the first time that Revelation refers to the beast, 36 times it will refer to the Antichrist as the beast. And so there's this idea that something comes up from the pit, and I don't know if this is a demonic presence in a politician, it's what it seems like. Something comes up, and the beast rises up, and he kills the witnesses. And the evil world literally celebrates their death. It says that they exchange gifts like it's some kind of satanic Christmas ritual. The world is overjoyed by their death. And then they see, and this is one of the most interesting things in Revelation, is they used to talk about, Revelation says everyone can see everything that's going on. Well, how is that possible? For thousands of years, that made no sense. But we look at that and we say, internet, satellite TV. If stuff like this is going on in Israel... Every camera in the world is going to be pointed at Jerusalem and we're going to watch everything happening in real time. So imagine these witnesses from God come and they're doing all these crazy things and prophesying and bringing plagues and cameras are watching. We're watching everything happen. Hopefully not us. We're in the church. Hopefully we're gone. I'm going to go into that. Other people are watching. And then suddenly these witnesses who have been dead in the streets for three and a half days, just left to rot because the people hate them so much that they won't even let them get buried. And suddenly, the same breath of God that 
gave life to Adam and Eve, the same breath of God that gives us life in our lungs today, goes back into the witnesses and they come back to life. Can you imagine this? You're watching this on live network television. And everyone's like, oh, we're in trouble. They come back and then suddenly, just as soon as they come back, God calls them and they're gone. Imagine the confusion that's taking place in the people that are watching this. As soon as they're gone, there's an aftermath that hits Jerusalem. A great earthquake shakes the city. One-tenth of the city is destroyed. 7,000 people are killed. And the people that, some of the people that are still there finally realize after all this, they realize this is the glory of God. And they give praise and honor to God because they finally realize they've, they've been pushed to this point and they finally see there is something far beyond me that is going on. These witnesses play a major role in the end times because they are a part of the judgment of God, but they are also a part of God's, don't miss this, they are a part of God's final push to save as many people as will be saved. He is sending these witnesses. They are casting judgments and all these things, but they are also preaching the gospel. They are evangelists saying, turn from your sin, repent, and be saved by God throughout all of this. You might know or maybe you don't, that the word witness in the Bible is the same word as the word martyr. A martyr is somebody who lays their life on the line, even to death, for the glory of God. And it's the same word. These witnesses are willing to die, and in fact do die, for the glory of God, just as so many people have done in the church history for the last couple thousand years. Their life is not as dear to them as the gospel. So this idea of being a witness is different than somebody who has just seen the glory of God. It is somebody who is willing to put their life on the line for the glory of God. And so these witnesses, they're the extreme version of this, right? They are the end times brought back from the dead by God to witness version, but they are still called to the same thing, that we are called to. You remember Acts 1.8, it's one of the core scriptures for the Alliance Church, and it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, my martyrs in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Being a witness is a part of the call that God has put on all of our lives. And maybe we will not literally die for our faith, but maybe some of us will. But that call upon their lives was the same call upon our lives, that we are called to be witnesses. People that show the glory of God to the world around us that is lost and hurting. Let's read the last section of Revelation 11. Verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of, our, of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their throne before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, 
saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. These words of the seventh trumpet set into motion the second coming of Jesus. He will reestablish the kingdom of God on earth. When he will bring creation back to what it was meant to be in the beginning before sin and brokenness led to all of this destruction. And this seventh trumpet will also inaugurate another set of seven that we'll get to later, the seven bowls of wrath. You see sevens come up in the Bible over and over again. And throughout Revelation, they are everywhere. It is the number of completeness. And God is bringing everything back to wholeness. But here, we talked about this a little bit last week, here we see the fulfillment of the prayers of generations of Christians like you and me who have prayed, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what's happening The will of God is to bring creation back into alignment with Him. To bring all of us back into perfect relationship with Him. And to do that, He must purge the earth from all of the destruction and sin that has made it evil. And as this happens, the elders that we talked about in the first couple weeks of this book, they fall down and they worship God representing all of the people of God. They fall down and they worship God. They worship Him and they say, You are the Almighty. If you remember, like first or second week, we talked about this word that I really like, Pantocrator. The Almighty God. They worship Him because He is Pantocrator. They praise Him for His eternality, that He was not made, that He has always existed, that everything that exists comes from Him. And they praise Him for His sovereignty, that He is in control of the universe. And then in the last verse, verse 19, this is so cool. Come back if you're checked out. Verse 19 tells us, we'll read it again. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Notice this chapter starts with a temple and ends with a temple. But the temple that it starts out with doesn't even exist right now. We think it's coming. It's the third temple. It will, it will come again. But the temple that it ends with is the presence of God. And so John is seeing this temple, this heavenly temple, and it opens up and it tells us that we can see the Ark of the Covenant, which is inside the Holy of Holies. So you have to wrap your mind around this idea for a Jewish person who has never been able to go into the Holy of Holies in their entire existence. Only one person can do that, and that's the high priest. And now John is seeing this vision and writing this down for Jewish people to read. And says, the temple of God was opened. And I could see the Holy of Holies. I could see the Ark of the Covenant. 
And the Jewish people believed that the very presence of God sat upon the top of the Ark of the Covenant. The kabod of God, which the weight of God sits there. And John says, I could see it, guys. I could see the presence of God. For them, this is mind-blowing to be able to witness that. And John is writing this, and he's saying, I can see the fullness of God on his throne. And in this moment where the seventh, seventh trumpet has blasted and the end is coming, right here, the broken world and the throne of God are coming closer and closer to where John says, I can see it. The presence of God is upon us. Praise God that he is not willing to just let his creation continue to labor and to continue to be destroyed. There will come a day when God says, enough. And he will bring everything back into relationship as it was meant to be. And this whole thing, back thousands of years, it is all a part of God's plan to bring everything back. Jesus was not plan B. He was always the plan to bring us back into relationship so that we could be in the presence of God. And John, as he's writing this, is talking about that day, and he's right on the cusp. He can see the presence of God about to fully change the world. It's exciting. It's sweet, but it's also sour. It's exciting, but it's painful. Other places in the Bible talk about the birth pangs. Right before new life comes, there is that pain, that bearing down. And this is what is happening in Revelation, and we're reading about it. And it's so exciting. I don't know about you, there's many days where I'm like, could we just do this? Come on. And there's other times when I realize I know a lot of people that are lost, and it's like, just wait. Wait a little longer, Lord. And so we continue to pray and we continue to lean in and say, he has called us to be martyrs. Maybe not to literally die, but to lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of those who do not know him yet. Worship team, you guys can come on up. We're going to be taking a couple weeks off of Revelation for the next couple Sundays. Cooper talked about it a little bit, but next week is my ordination service. I would be incredibly honored if you guys would join us for that. Jonathan Wiggins is our district superintendent for the whole Rocky Mountain District, and he's coming, and he's going to preach, and, and uh, he's one of my favorite human beings on the planet, so I'm excited to hang out with him, and really excited to be with you guys for my ordination. It's three and a half years of work, done. The following week, we have Easter Sunday. Please invite people, tell people, anybody who needs to know Jesus. Uh, we're going to pack this place out. We're going to the worship center down there, the activity center, we're going to do overflow in there. So I recommend coming early if you want to sit within my spit zone. Um, good job, Tim. But thank you guys for being a part of what God is doing here at Alliance Fellowship. And I, do, I want you to know that uh, the elders and the board members here, we are taking very seriously this responsibility that God has uh, given us 
bringing people like you guys and your families to be a part of this family. And so we're praying and seeking the Lord. What does that mean? How do we continue to lean into this and to grow? And so part of that is just always getting back to the Word of God, spending time getting to know God more and more. But part of it is also practical things that we need to figure out. So continue to pray for us as a church family as those decisions get made and continue to invite people to church to hear the gospel and to be a part of what God is doing in this place. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for all that you're doing. Thank you that you are almighty and eternal and sovereign. Thank you, God, that in our lowest of lows and our highest of highs, you are steady and always there. And thank you, God, that even though we read about things that are going to happen someday, whether they're in our lifetimes or not, we don't know, but we can read those things and we can say, oh, that's scary or that's exciting. Or but no matter what, if we are in your hands, you will care for us, and we know that. We know that you are good and loving. God, we're so grateful for it. And so would you help us to be witnesses to the world that does not know you yet? help us to be willing and able to lay down our lives for the sake of your gospel.